Hi, and welcome to episode four of the Decoding Culture podcast on This Is HCD. The podcast focuses on the importance that culture plays in all areas of business and society, from how it shapes organizations and teams to how it influences consumer experience, design, and larger societal trends. My name is John Curran, and I'm your host. I'm a business anthropologist, executive coach and facilitator, and CEO of JC and Associates, which is a consultancy that explores how culture shapes organizations and consumer behavior. As a business anthropologist, I often find my eyes are running through the business sections of large bookstores to try and piece together the cultural trends that are shaping business thinking today. Leadership is the clear front runner here, but why is this so? To help me navigate this question, I sat down with journalist and author Stefan Stern. Stefan has been writing about management and leadership for over 20 years. He regularly writes in the Financial Times, The Guardian, and other business publications. He is visiting professor in management practice at CAS Business School, and he has also written two business books. The first one is Myths of Management, What People Get Wrong About Being the Boss. Uh, he co-authored this with Professor Carrie Cooper, and recently his second book has come out called How to Be a Better Leader. In this episode, Stefan and I explore the current trends in thinking around leadership. What makes a good leader? And of course, what are some of the pitfalls of being a leader? We discuss themes such as purpose and leadership, the importance of developing values. Here, Stefan offers a brilliant example of how independent bookstores use values to counter the threat of big companies like Amazon. He also provides an interesting take on placing Winston Churchill as the numero uno figure of what good leadership is. You can also find out where Stefan will be taking his anthropologist's notebook and why. So enjoy this episode. So Stefan, welcome to Decoding Culture Podcast. Very nice to be here, John. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, we're, we're sitting uh, in an apartment, my apartment in Crystal Palace, South London. So it, it, we, we feel that we're grounded here. So it's, um, <laughs> well, I'm South London born and bred, so I haven't got very far from home today. I know. We, 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 we know each other's turfs, yeah. as, uh, <laughs> as we say. So we're going to be talking about leadership. And one of the kind of big questions or the opening questions I wanted to say is, well, why leadership? Why are you writing about leadership? Well, I write about leadership and management, and we can sort of discuss later how different those things are or not. I think leadership is a timeless topic. Uh, we're always interested in who's in charge, what direction are we going in. Uh, we always have views about our leaders, and some of us actually want to be leaders. Some of us feel we are uh, natural-born leaders or our places out front or up top. So it's a, a timeless, a permanent topic of interest. Uh, and leadership undoubtedly matters, although, of course, what I'm interested in is the extent to which sometimes we maybe overemphasize or exaggerate the importance of leadership or worship the wrong leaders or see what bad leadership can do to us. So on many levels, it's a topic that I just find kind of endlessly interesting. It's quite interesting, though, if you go to big bookstores or you go to the airport bookshop or big train station bookshops, in the business shelves of books it's it's kind of bombarded with leadership stuff right mm -hmm. and and you go into linkedin and there's mindfulness and leadership there's leadership and leadership there's new this type of leadership are we seeing a kind of cultural shift in how leadership is kind of packaged up how, how are we made to think about it i think it's perhaps more, more cyclical than a linear shift i think things come and go in and out of fashion uh because of history because of politics or the economic cycle and different types of leadership are fashionable at different moments. 
you've got the whole media. Obviously, I'm a journalist, so I'm obsessed with the media uh, impact of the stories that we tell about successes and failures. M- myths often, you know, false, almost fairy tale versions of what's really happened. Mm-hmm. You know, post-hoc rationalizations of leadership, which are actually nothing like what was really going on at the time. But we, we, we live off the myths and prefer that. So I I'm, I'm don't know if, it, if there's a permanent shift, for example, in one direction, but I think there are cycles and fashions and more of a pendulum swing maybe of um, what comes in and out of fashion. Okay, so but in, in your book that was came out less than a year ago, the mm. h- How to Be a Better Leader, and I'll say a little bit more about that later because we, we do have a copy for um, one of our listeners, but it, it, it's always bad to quote the first page of a book because <laughs> it looks like that's all I've read and I'm sure you have read the whole thing. However, there is a a striking quote of yours in there. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it does say that leadership is in crisis. Uh-huh. Yes. Can you tell us why? Of course, that is partly a dramatic scene setting to try and get people to go beyond the first, first page. page. Yeah, well, okay, Maybe yeah. it worked with yeah. you, I don't know. <laughs> I think, well, I suppose going back to that literal meaning of crisis as in, you know, a, a point where we've got to make a choice between perhaps one of many different paths. I think it's also in crisis, though, because of the deep, deep scepticism, not to say cynicism, that so many of us have about leaders. I mean, it's the flip side or the, the double-edged nature of transparency. that We all kind of think in principle that we approve of transparency. But that does mean seeing almost everything, seeing a lot more that we perhaps didn't used to see. Mm-hmm. And we see leaders up close in real time. And we're not always convinced that they're doing a terribly good job. We've had, of course, great financial economic crisis in the past decade. The, the politics are also shifting, the rise of populism, and that's the kind of simple solution leadership that some people are offering. So I would say crisis in the sense of what's the right way to go? You know, what is the model? What is the approach that works now? And also there's, an, there's another point about leadership that it does have to adapt to the circumstances that we're in. But I think the part of the crisis that I'm trying to describe is that deep scepticism, not to say cynicism, about people... Uh, at the top and uh, you know do they really have do the authority figures supposed actually have much authority left but who's actually questioning that then i mean if if we as this kind of collective are looking at leaders and beginning to question them who, who are the we i mean mm-hmm. who are questioning leaders in i think it's the it's the it's we in different contexts so it's we as employees we as in families or community groups uh, we as voters we as sports fans we as cultural critics or consumers of culture. So any leadership job, if it's the guy running the National Theatre, running art galleries, uh, any, or the BBC, what's the story again and again is, oh, well, that's the leadership, you know, mm. you know, and the big touch. And we, what we need around here is leadership, people say. And then you ask them, what do you mean? And some people mean, I want a very confident, assertive person to tell me what to do. Very old-fashioned view of leadership. But that's what some people think they want until they get told to do something they don't want to do. And then they have to wrestle with, well, is that actually the model of leadership that's really going to work for me? So, sometimes, as a, uh, or often as an anthropologist, I'm asked the question, well, what is culture? Right? Yes. And I go, well, <laughs> so if I said, well, what actually then is leadership? Ah, okay. I mean, I'm not, maybe you do have a succinct definition, but how would you describe it? Well, I think this is where the adjectives come in in a way because, you know, there's one, there are versions of leadership. So there's something called classically command and control leadership, which is 
essentially directing and telling people pretty much what you want specifically. And of course, in certain circumstances, that might be necessary and it might be the right way to go. People think that's somehow military. They feel it's sort of almost they're in a uniform, command and control. You go to Sandhurst, the, the, where the British Army leaders are trained, and it turns out they don't really believe in command and control leadership at all. Certainly not in theatre, in war. They want everyone to display leadership. They want everyone to be able to step up in case the, the, the colonel or the boss gets a bullet through the head in the first few moments of, of conflict. Um, but anyway, that's one classic version of leadership. But then there are more kind of uh, collaborative versions. There's distributed leadership where you actually delegate and you share leadership among several people. Um, there's so-called servant leadership where you're more humble, where you kind of offering to serve and indeed at the at sandhurst over the gates there it says serve to lead okay so um uh, i think the word leadership alone requires unpacking as you're asking me to sometimes with labels sometimes with adjectives of course crudely narrowly you might say it's something about setting direction setting the direction of, of travel for a group of people and maybe setting some goals and targets uh and another fashion word that's coming through a lot at the moment is purpose so maybe a leader has something to do with explaining what the point is of what you're doing and in that sense becoming something of a storyteller so that's really interesting i think we we kind of then that storyteller part of leadership kind of comes into this anthropological space as well sure. but there's I've, I've heard things about a leader should be able to tell stories because the facts the message sit within stories mm. rather than just bullet points yes yes so yes, there's yes, something yes. and there we're getting into one of the distinctions between leadership and management okay. uh and I, I we can talk about this a bit more if you like I, I, on the whole my my bias if you like is that we overemphasize the difference between leadership and management and the fact that they're blurred and they're not that different but one difference you could say is that managers are more in that sort of bullet point task completion world, okay. whereas leaders are perhaps telling a bigger picture and a bigger story, which is the thing about direction and, and, and purpose and why, and why we're here, which is not a bullet point. So I've, I've got this image then of, of a leader in a nice kind of swivel Eames chair kind of rocking back it's the dream thinking about thinking about purpose and vision yes. and then they've got these managers maybe standing around there with a kind of clipboard yes. ready to go and yes that's right and that's that's the fun that's nice and it's a nice sort of caricature in a way but you can immediately see the danger in that uh where leaders say grandly perhaps if they're sort of rather narcissistic you know oh i'm strictly big picture mm. don't come to me with the little stuff that's for you guys that's for managers Right. I am a leader, I'm out, capital L, and I'm out top and I'm out front and I've got big ideas and you, the little people, have to try and make it work. See, I think that this is a very terrible version of leadership which is detached. But equally, the manager who just says, well, I'm heads down, or don't give me the per don't give me the big picture, just give me what's the target for the week and I'll hit it and I'll get, I'll get this done by Friday. And, you know, I just manage, I'm not a leader. What I'm building up to saying is that really, ideally... And this is where the word boss is quite useful, actually. Okay. You really need bosses who kind of are able to provide leadership and are able to manage. Now, would you want to work for a leader who can't manage? And do you want to work for a manager who can't lead? And you know, the answer is no to both. Now, it's asking a lot of a human being to be capable of both these things. But my fear is that when we overemphasize the distinction between leadership and management, we kind of let people off the hook and we say to them, okay, well, you, okay Dave, you're a leader 
and surely you're a manager and uh, you know stick to stick to what you're good at and you know we, we won't ask any more of you and, and that's probably not quite good enough so then what are some of the consequences then of that if we had dave as leader mm. and shirley as manager and we went back to ch- to go and see what the organizational culture was like a year mm. later mm. What, what what are some of the issues we might be seeing with that type of model well i think me in in shirley's team and i'm s- sorry i picked the gender in that order but anyway well, let's go with it you know in shirley's team there's gonna be a lot of people saying well why yeah, why are we doing this you know i mean okay you can this is target okay you said four o'clock Thursday, this has got to be done, and but I don't. Why? You know, okay. <laughs> what? Why should I be working hard to do this? And meanwhile, Dave, in his lovely chair, in his uh, executive office, there, is completely out of touch, and he has no idea what's happening on the shop floor or what, what where the real work is happening, and he's full of his dreams of leadership, and this wonderful self-created notion of himself as a as playing the role of a leader, and actually he's absolutely detached from the reality of the work that has to be done. And in the end, this does all have to come back to, you know, as Peter Drucker said, good ideas have to degenerate into work. Yes. And, yeah. and, it's, and it's about task completion. And so, so while I've written about leadership, I've also written about management, my first book, and I, and I like to write about both because um, you can't have one without the other. And um, when leadership is detached from the real necessarily messy business of work and task completion, something's gone wrong. Okay, so this kind of, we're going to get back to some other stuff, but this leads on to this idea of what makes, and you write about this in the book, um, Mm. you you write both, what makes a good and what makes a bad leader. (laughs) But this idea then of, it sounds like there's a kind of fine balance between being a leader but having elements of the management as well. What makes a good leader then? What, What are some of the characteristics we should be looking at? So I'm giving you the answer to that in, in 2020 and, you know, five years from now, the answer might sound slightly different depending on the context. So that's my first point. You know, a good leader is effective in a given context in an organization and a, at a moment in time. So today the answer is good leaders are good listeners. They are sensitive to the world around them and to the organization that they're leading. But they're also clear sighted okay. and purposeful. And they do set a direction. They do have confidence. And that can even be arrogance. I'm not saying leaders have to be sheepish, humble. You know, in the, the Jim Collins uh, good to great world, he talks about level five leaders who are essentially rather low ego, modest people who don't make it. And I, I know exactly what he's getting at. It's a very good point that you are there to serve the organization. It's not about you as the leader. It's about everybody else and about also what you leave behind when you finish. But I don't mind... Uh, well-founded arrogance in a leader who who's really good and is leading an organization that's thriving you should feel confident about that you should feel good about that okay well-founded arrogance what i mean there is one image of that which might be i'm going to listen to you and you can i'll always listen to you but then you will agree that i'm right (laughs) which is the brian clough the football manager approach but arrogance being being able to shout, being able to say this is how it's going to happen, tough. I mean, what, what, no, what, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm slightly exaggerating to make the point, but no, but I'm just saying that confidence and even slight overconfidence is not a bad thing because, you know, optimism and what's sometimes called can do mm. is very important. We don't want to work for pessimists and you can, you can uh, tip into that a little bit if uh, you overemphasize the sort of the modesty, humility, low ego stuff suddenly there's no presence, you know. And we, again, we, 
you don't have to be charismatic. It probably helps a bit. It's not it's not the main game in town of leadership is charisma. I wouldn't agonize about it, but it can help. And uh, confidence uh, in, encourages people. And that's another thing I think a leader has to do. You, you have to encourage people. This idea of charisma, mm. I think you've picked up on because that's mm. something charisma i mean from anthropological theory mm. of uh, you know papua new guinea and yes. um, the famous anthropologist econ and economic anthropologist marshall Salins talks about big men big man theory <laughs> and it's all about mm. getting a uh, getting a following yes. getting people admiring you and yes. then rewarding them back with financial good and lavish parties and mm. but there's always the potential that there's a younger big man ready to topple you of course but how far do we take charisma how how does charisma lean into narcissism? Does it, you know, and this is, I guess, everything feels like a balancing act. Yes, trade-offs, absolutely right. I mean, it is a trade-off. And, and, that, and you know, journalistically, we might be tempted to say that it's something is either correct or wrong, and that there's a, a right way and a wrong way. And actually, there's more of a spectrum and a, a balancing act. So, I, so I, I don't totally belittle charisma, but again, I don't over... Egg it. I and mean, Jim Collins again said, well, he said to me when I interviewed him, you know, charisma isn't data and it's not results. It's not really a substantial thing. He, I mean, he, he said charisma is irrelevant. I, I might not quite go that far myself. Uh, I, I think it can help. But the thing about charisma is, you know, when a leader leaves the room, do you remember, does their personality actually resonate? Do you remember what they said? Or do you just say, oh, what was all that noise about? And so there's a risk that if, with charisma, it is just noise that kind of makes you feel quite good at the time, but doesn't do anything that lasts and doesn't doesn't resonate after you've left the room. Um, that's what you want to guard against. There's something else. I mean, I think it was also really interesting what I've kind of certainly noticed with my own work, but also mm -hmm. just generally the kind of cultural landscape that. Different type, right? There's leaders of corporations, there's mm. leaders of um, government or charity mm. bodies, and then what we see a lot of, especially in the literature and books, mm. is is the kind of startup leader, mm. and it seems to all merge into one. And yes. work I do with some organisations, mm. there's the the kind of leader being the founder, and with a growing company, that can cause mm. some interesting mm. challenges. And it's an interesting thing about leader as founder. And mm. what can, how would a founder leader be helped to maybe develop? Well, well, this is the context point because there's a certain type of leadership that might really be absolutely necessary in that startup phase, which is about total commitment uh, and uh, long, <laughs> the long hours culture and being quite hard on yourself, but also, of course, resilience as things go wrong again and again and you maybe run out of money or very nearly do and, and so on. But clearly... I mean, that feels almost like crisis management. That's clearly not what you want once a business is has been through one or two cycles, is, has been funded, is established. You can't run in permanent crisis. You know, adaptation, yes, but not crisis. And so that founder leader has got to decide and needs good advisors, really, and good friends to tell him or her, you know, you've finished your job here. Okay. Go and, go and start something else because you are a founder, but you are, and you're an entrepreneur, but you are not the sort of steady state uh, incremental growth leader. That's a different sort of person. Very difficult for someone to be all these different things and have that adaptability and versatility to behave in very different ways at different times in the life cycle of a business. I'm sure some can do it, uh, but not, not many of us can. 
But that's a massive thing, isn't it? For someone mm. to be able to say to you, maybe it's time you move on. <laughs> yeah. You've done great. Yeah. You're not going to be a pauper. But the emotional attachment yeah, yeah, yeah. that's played out, often sure. that, that becomes, if anything, the, the toxic. If, if your name's on the door, you know, if it's your baby, yeah, that's, that's hard. But, you know, it could be that your work is done and that the legacy, the true legacy, is other people picking up what you've built and doing more with it. Because it, it, that's... The, the appropriate leadership for that for that moment and you know task completion is a good thing and you know good consultants do some work with a client and then can move on the client can you know knowledge is transferred skills and capabilities are transferred and the client can move on they're not addicted to the consultant and it's the same with leaders we we, we, we can't be addicted to a leader because what happens when the leader goes like a family where the part of familias dies and things crumble well, the legacy has not been prepared for properly. So leaders should always be thinking about what happens to this place when I'm dead, when I've gone. That's It's almost like the psychoanalysis Bowlby talking about attachment theory. You know, <laughs> yeah. good attachment, but also good detachment. Ah, yes. About how, how exactly. you know, the, the, the child leaving the house. How, exactly. how do you, this idea of legacy, you brought it up, that's yeah. really interesting. Is it, Legacy, I think sometimes people get confused. It's about... How, Legacy isn't about how many trophies are there in the cabinet. It's about actually what's going to happen when I've gone. And is that something that actually leaders should be coached in? Is what is your what is the legacy you would like to have? Indeed. And that's what you would need to be. That would serve both company and also the individual. Some people will tell you that it's almost a day one thought, a day one task. You know, we know in public companies, quoted companies, the leader may only get three or four years. It's really not very long in the history of a company, an organization that you hope is going to be around for decades to come. Yeah. Um, so clearly you need to be, uh, well, it's in Stephen Covey, of course, is one of the seven ha habits of highly effective people is start with the end in mind. And, or as the Romans right. used to say, uh, respice finem. You know, you've got to think about the ending, your departure. Right. And what you're really trying to achieve, because we are only here for a limited amount of time, whether it's three or four years as CEO or in a human life expectancy. And uh, that's where purpose helps, because you, that's the, it's the answer to the purpose question in a way is, well, when I finished here, what will it look like and, and how will they be set up for the future? How does that work, though, if we you, you brought you mentioned the term earlier. I saw it on, on the BBC a couple of nights ago with the Labour Party and their leadership yep. debate uh, around what one of the one of the candidates, Kay Starmer, talked about yeah. collaborative leadership. Yes. And I was thinking, well, does that mean lots of post-it notes? Does that mean <laughs> Sharpie pens? And, you know, we've got a big design audience who listen to this. Yeah. Um, and the word collaboration sounds really sexy and egalitarian. But how do I think about my legacy and me as a leader if we're talking about collaboration in that way? I mean, is there a tension that... I think that's another trade-off because, as I say, you've got to be confident. There's a degree of vanity or arrogance, you know, narcissism is helpful in leaders. You know, Michael Maccabee has written about, you know, constructive narcissists. Right. And he doesn't he doesn't regard narcissist as a wholly pejorative term. You know, you've got to have a you've got to have you know some idea about yourself. You know, you've got to think that you've got something to contribute. It takes a degree of that arrogance, if you like, to to put yourself forward as a leader. But yes, equally, the collaboration point is I don't know everything. One of the myths we tell about leaders is that they're these heroic lonely figures. You know, we say it's lonely at the top, but it shouldn't be completely lonely at the top because you should always be listening to people and you should always have some trusted advisors 
I know there's business confidentiality and so on, and you can't necessarily be completely candid about everything. But actually, a friend of mine from uh, Cass Business School, Laura Empson, who, whose specialism is professional service firms, always says, you know, if you're lonely at the top, you're doing it wrong because uh, you, you should be talking to people and listening to people. Um, but, coll- but, but, but collaboration is drawing on the gifts, the talents, the ideas of other people, not being so arrogant that you think that you know everything. That's really important because actually that you write about this as well in the book, but the learning culture right. model, which Microsoft have done so well at. So it started with the leader yes. as, a, as, an, as, a, as a focus, as a purpose. Yes. But actually it's resonated throughout the whole company Yes, as this importance to be able to learn, yes. Yes. listen, all, all these type of... You, you talk about purpose, you also talk about values. Oh, yes. Now, my gripe with values is when I go into organizations and they, they, I start doing what I call a cultural audit, yes. I see values as things that exist on walls as statements or yes. in nice pamphlets and marketing communications, yes. and they're kind of ideological. They sound nice, but actually yes. they haven't got much oomph behind them. Yes. Um, and and are, is there also a problem that it's not clear from the list of values what the business actually does i mean okay. this is a problem with mission statements and values that are sort of almost generic or or non-specific because i think well you tell me but i think if a culture is vibrant and vital and if values are being lived in that sense then they should strike people who are there as as, as, as meaningful and relevant to the the experience of their day-to-day working life a value that's imposed from outside because a ceo or his or her advisor say oh we've got to say something about integrity Yes. You know, yeah. uh, if you actually, meanwhile, in the business, it's a pretty cutthroat, rough business where corners are being cut and difficult tra- ethical trade-offs are being made. To tell everyone, talk to everyone about integrity, it's just going to sound completely false. I think that's a good, great point. It's um, often, I think, where you see values work is when it actually goes into the nitty-gritty, the day, DNA of the everyday culture. Right. So how do we run our meetings? What, what do our yes. KPIs look like? Yes. You know, the, the hard... Not the, the the hard everyday stuff, not just the yes, you know, once a year reviewing our values. And you would probably talk about the artifacts of of, okay. the, of the workplace, right? In yeah. the parking spaces, exactly. How clean are the toilets? Yeah, you know, I mean, you can't talk about you know, our people are our biggest asset. Oh, but don't go to the loo because it's you, you'll be sick. Yeah. You know? yes, I mean, it's, yeah. it's like it's these these contrasts you know aren't sustainable. You, 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 there's a great example I want to. Um, I want to explore a bit. I think it was, uh, uh, firstly, you mentioned ethnography in the book, which is superb. Um, (laughs) Professor Ryan Ravielli from Harvard Business School did a big study on independent bookshops Mm. and where values came into their narrative and how they worked as a means of almost like a counter to Amazon. Can you tell me a bit about that? That sort. Well, he's just he's he talks about the this building of community and curating and convening. He's three C's, and we could add a fourth C, which is care, which I think is kind of implicit in all that. And it's just trying to say it's where yes, it's kind of your sweet spot in a way because it's where culture and business models collide, but to productive effect. Because he's saying that we we're only going to survive here if we are different. We can't be this mass mass thing. We've got to. Uh, reinstate the human factor and let people know that we, we are real people, that this is a community, that it's worth sticking with us. And, and then we're going to convene it, as he says, and curate it. But we, 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 we actually care, you know. And I think that, that's a very interesting word, care, as a noun mm. and a verb. And it's something that leaders need to transmit. They need to show that they genuinely, the genuinely is silent, genuinely care. Uh, yeah. it's a much abused word 
if you look at the state of social care, for example, we call something that we call care is actually uh, you know minimal yes. and not human. And I think what he spotted with these bookshops is that, that they care. It's a business, but they genuinely care. But they care about the community, and then the yes. so they. Am I right in thinking they become also then part of the fabric of com- of community? Embedded. Embedded. Yes. So it becomes reciprocal, the relationship yes. between customer and... Yes. Uh, yeah. and, and people touch on this when they talk about experience, customer experience, but meaningful customer experience is more like the, what you're describing, where you go there to shop. You might not buy anything on that occasion, but you go there because it's a place that you recognize that means something to you, that has embedded with values that are your values that you share that you feel part of and and as you know so some people talk about participatory uh consumerism yes. where you're not just passively accepting something or uh, you know buying something in a thoughtless way but you're actually there is an experience and you know if high streets are going to survive shop and retail is going to survive there's got to be more than just the amazon ex- minimal experience which is you know ultra efficient yeah. And price competitive, you know, the shop, the physical shop has got to give us something more than that. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, well, I'm hoping and bef- uh, I, I, that's why I wanted to focus on that, because I'm hoping to be doing a, a pod issue with an independent bookstore around how he goes around the Amazon exactly. um, challenge yes. uh, locally here in Crystal Palace. So, yes. um, so this is going to be fantastic. Uh, what uh, with my kind of cultural analysis hat on reading a lot of stuff around um, leadership in books, but also on LinkedIn and yep. talks on TED. And yes, I find this kind of cultural trend where often the the, the focus is on leaders of companies and business. Yes. But as an example, it seems to kind of flip into this idea of, well, we're going to use politicians as an example sure. here, or famous sports coaches or managers like Sir Alec Ferguson of yep. Manchester United, or, you know, as a leader. Um, why why do we see that? Why do we see that kind of need to look at politicians or look at sports coaches as this kind of... I suppose it's partly an availability bias, I think you would call it, right. because they're there and we see them all the time. I mean, I'm very struck by... I'm sorry to talk about football because it's a bit sort of uh, gender stereotyping maybe going on here. But um, in the TV coverage of football, as you know, so- or soccer to our American friends, um, the camera shows the manager at the side of the pitch, a hell of a lot. The reaction shots, the emotions, the gestures, and all that all that kind of vocabulary, visual vocabulary of uh, how the coach, how the manager... But actually, in the, in, in the football matches, two halves of 45 minutes each, um, what is the manager doing? The manager isn't on the pitch. The pe- you know, this is my point about work, and yes. task completion. In terms of work, the work is on the pitch, and it's the staff, the people, the players who are doing the work. I mean, the, th- the manager's reaction is theatre. Of course, that he, if it is a male boss, is trying to convey something across the white line of the pitch to the team. But it, and that sums up, in a way, for me, the, the way that we sometimes over-exaggerate the lead at the expense of the team and the work that's being done. Uh, but yes, we, we, we love sports coaches, we love politicians. It seems to me there's something interesting and actually pretty dangerous going on at the moment as far as political leaders are concerned and this rise of populism which there's absolute um, divergence between what a lot of us have been saying and thinking about leadership and management for 30 years now about collaboration about facilitation listening uh, and, and moving away from command and control in the workplace 
broadly. And meanwhile, in politics, we see highly authoritarian, even dictatorial populist leaders laying down the law, breaking norms of behavior mm. in terms of truth-telling and morality and social and, and conduct and so on. And those are the leaders who are having a big impact on our lives. And of course, as, and as you say, those are the leaders we focus on an enormous amount. So as someone who's interested in leadership and has written about it, I am troubled, to say the least, by this phenomenon of the really rather demagogic right. populist leaders in, in the realm of politics, because it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very direct challenge to almost everything I've written about for almost three decades. But if, if I was to kick back on that, yeah. surely we're seeing that as, you know, if that was in business, we'd be talking about innovative leader and, you know, the kind of breaking convention and, you know, it's the kind of um, the charismatic leader of Max Weber talked about, you know, uh -huh. not going with tradition, not yes. going with rationality. Let's throw the rule book out. Yes. Well, there's a bit of that and that is creative in business and, you know, Predictably, I've got to mention someone like Steve Jobs. You know, I mean, mm. you know, he looked different, he behaved differently, he created a mystique and an aura, and he's a brilliant, he's a brilliant marketer apart from anything else about these shiny products that everybody wanted to have. Um, uh, but it is done for a creative purpose in business. What we don't really seem to want anymore in business, not really, are true dictators. Uh, you know, forceful or even aggressive command and control people and corporate governance reform all around the world over again over these past two or three decades has been all about trying to rein in uh, excessively dominant chief executives because we worry about what happens to those businesses. I mean, particularly in the financial sector, of course, but also elsewhere, if if there is this sort of lone figure calling all the shots. So I say in business, by and large, we've been moving away from that. And meanwhile, on the political stage, uh, people uh, acting very, very uh, crudely, directly. And, but of course, you know, and here's the challenging bit for me, some voters apparently liking it. Because as I said uh, right at the beginning, to some people, leadership means a very assertive, foghorned-voiced person standing at the on a table or something telling you what to do right it becomes you in the book you do mention winston churchill yeah. right i mean it's very interesting because i think in the white house in in washington there's uh obama got removed the the head of winston churchill and mm. president trump brought it back in mm. and he's rolled out as the leader of leaders right mm. but you question that in the book yes because the and you'll know from the many biographies including more recent ones Church had a long and fascinating, extraordinary life. And between 1940 and 1945, he was the right person at the right time. The leadership he provided between 1940 and 1945 for that period was extraordinary and vital to our freedoms that we can sit here today in London and speak freely. Mm. So I do not belittle that in one, one iota. But the way he acted and behaved between 1940 and 1945 is not necessarily, almost certainly not, the way to behave as a leader at all other times. He had been considered a failure. He'd had lots of uh, disasters in his early political career, lots of misjudgments. And uh, after 1945, you know, it's still quite hard for non-Brits to grasp that in the general election, only a few weeks after both VE Day in May and the, and the final end of the war, in a general election... Churchill was booted out. The Conservative Party was ejected forcefully with a massive landslide victory for modest Mr. Attlee, 
and the Labour Party that was proposing something quite different. And because in a way, if there was any wisdom in the crowd at that point, the voters would say, thank you very much, Mr. Churchill. The war is over. We're now in a totally different phase of this country's history. We're about rebuilding. And also, by the way, trying to avoid some of the mistakes that maybe led us to the brink of war in the past. Uh, and his leadership was no longer required. There's film of Churchill being heckled in Walthamstow, North London, at a Greyhound track as he's campaigning wow. in the election of 1945, being heckled just a few weeks after crowds everywhere cheering him for being the saviour of the nation. So in a way, the public arguably made a very sensible choice and distinction between leadership of one period in our history and the leadership that would be needed in another moment. Just as I was saying, the startup, the founder leader may be ideal for a certain time and then no longer what's really wanted. I'm going to ask you about advice. Okay. To imagine if you had to give one bit of advice to kind of a smart person who's entering into this world of leadership, what, what would this one bit of advice be? Well, if I cheat and take two, I suppose it's listen and learn or observe and learn. Because I think you, you're right, we've been discussing earlier this business of adapting and changing your repertoire of behavior. Uh, I would recommend uh, Emilia Ibarra's work. Uh, she's now at London Business School. Uh, her latest book was uh, Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader. And uh, I think she makes this point that you're going to have to adapt. If you're stepping up to a leadership role or want to, um, the, what got you to a certain position might not be necessary, might, might not work um, in a more char uh, challenging and exposed position. And interestingly, she talks about this question of authenticity, uh, that you will have to adapt, change the way you do things, maybe in a way that isn't natural to you in immediately, that maybe feels slightly inauthentic. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this slightly crude notion of authenticity, which says, oh, just be yourself. But that's not quite enough. And as um, Rob Goffey and Gareth Jones say in their book, Why Should Anyone Be Led By You?, you have to be yourself, but more, i.e. draw on the good bits, and then, but with skill. So judge the moment, judge the situation, and learn and observe and listen from what happens because it's not a, it's not a finishing line, it's, a, it's an ongoing task of becoming a better leader. But everyone can, can do that, everyone can adapt and everyone can learn and, and get better at it. So it's, it, it might be daunting, but these things are doable. That's great, okay. So my final wrap-up question, I ask this to all my guests. Um, I give, I'm going to give you the anthropological, the anthropologist's notebook. Yes. And you can take this notebook anywhere for a year-long ethnographic study. Okay. Relevant to what we've been talking yes. about. So wh where do you think you'll take this notebook and go and study with it? Okay, well, I may have missed the most exciting part of it, the transition, but I would still would like to hang out with Sachin Nadella at Microsoft, as you mentioned earlier, because something pretty remarkable seems to have happened at Microsoft in the past few years, when most of us, all us wise guys in the media and in the business community, said, oh, Microsoft's finished. That's a, that's a dying dying company. I mean, dying very, very slowly, and it's still rich and powerful, but don't look to Microsoft for anything interesting to happen. And they have, they have completely confounded that. And they've shown that there can be sort of second lives, even for great corporations. And he has transmitted something, uh, yes, as a strong leader, but also in, the, I think, probably in a collaborative way. He has transmitted something to the organization that really seems to have made something interesting happen there. And that's something incredible because it's such a big organization. Yeah, exactly. And to get that kind of change is yes. incredible. Yeah. yeah.
Well, I'll be looking forward to your ethnographic anthropologist book that you'll be writing on Microsoft, hopefully in a couple of years. But Stefan, thank you so much. And um, it's, been, it's been a pleasure having you as a guest. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Decoding Culture podcast. Please do subscribe to it on iTunes and give it a rating. If you want to learn more about other shows and podcasts on This Is HCD Network, visit thisishcd.com, where you can also sign up to the newsletter and join the Slack channel where there's some fantastic conversations happening. Stefan has also kindly provided me with a signed copy of his latest book, How to Be a Better Leader. To receive this free copy, please visit thisishcd.com and sign up to the newsletter. Then email me at john at jcassociateslondon.com and write a short sentence relating to what does leadership mean to you. The best email will receive the book in the post. See you next time.